Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Welcome to the second Sunday in Advent. Um, and while you're turning in your Bibles, I want to just do a, a short family time announcement here. Um, you know, we've talked about how we're going to have a, a Christmas morning service, and we get it. Christmas morning is busy. There's lots going on. Uh, and so we want it to be casual, come as you are, just show up. If you're in your pajamas with kids, great. Show up in your pajamas. I told you last week, you know, I'll show up in my pajamas. We'll, we'll all be there. Um, I had a, a, a dear brother come to me this past week and say that really bothered him. It concerned him that the pastor was going to stand up front, preach God's word in pajamas. He felt that that, that was disrespectful to the Lord. That it would give the impression, it could give the impression to people, especially if non-Christians were coming, that, that, that we don't take this seriously, that this isn't important, that this is kind of a, you know, just a, an aside thing. And so we, we talked about that for a while, because of course, there's nothing in Scripture about what you wear. Scripture doesn't say what you wear or what you don't wear. So this isn't an issue of doctrine. He's not saying, oh, this is sin. He's saying, this concerns me. I'm not sure about this. I, I, I don't think this is wise. And if scripture says nothing about clothing, wow, it says a lot about freedom. I want to read you something. So Paul will tell the, the, the Corinthians, we are not unaware of the evil one's schemes. This is a book called The Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis many years ago. Great book. It is from the perspective of the demons. It is the demon's handbook on how to harm Christians. So he's writing this as if he were a demon giving advice to people. I want you to listen to what he says about how to cause harm within the church. He says, I'm not talking about doctrinal issues. Oh, the more lukewarm a Christian is about those, the better. It isn't doctrines that we depend upon for producing malice in the church. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion when neither party could possibly state the difference in any form that would hold water for five minutes. All the purely indifferent things, candles and clothing and whatnot, they're an admirable ground for our activities. We have quite removed from men's minds what that pestilent fellow Paul used to teach about food and other non-essentials, namely, that the human without scruples should always give in to the human with scruples. You would think they could not fail to see the application. You would expect to find the low churchman genuflecting and crossing himself, lest the weak conscience of his higher brother should be moved to irreverence, and the high brother refraining from these exercises, lest he should betray his low brother into idolatry. And so it would be, except for our ceaseless labor. Without that, the variety of usage within the church might become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. This is how we treat each other. We defer. We give up our rights. Could I wear pajamas to church? Of course, there's nothing in scripture about it. But it would concern a brother. It would make him less likely to bring his friends to church. It would be an issue for him. So am I going to wear pajamas to church next week? Heavens no. <laughs> no, of course not. I could. But a brother has said, oh, that... That worries me. That concerns me. He used Lewis's language. He has scruples about this. He has issues. He's, he's not sure about this. And I don't. There's nothing in Scripture. Well, you want to wear pajamas? Wear pajamas. You don't want to? You don't, you don't have to. This is how we treat each other. Why am I telling you this? 
One of the things Paul tells Timothy, when he leaves Timothy as the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and then he writes him in 1 and 2 Timothy, he says, be an example to your congregation. Set an example for your conduct, your way of life, how you live. I'm telling you this, I mean, partially because I told you last week I was wearing wear pajamas, and now I'm not, so I want you to know what changed. But also, I want you to see the example. This is how we treat each other, where we can defer to one another. Again, not doctrine. I mean, there's some things we hang on to, right? You're like, Jeff, I don't like all this stuff. I don't like being told I'm a sinner. Please stop. Yeah, sorry, that's not going to happen. Doctrine, no. Preferences, oh, absolutely. Where we can defer to one another where we can give up our rights to make each other comfortable, to, to make it easier for us to worship together, to bring your friends. Oh, heck, if it makes you easier to bring your friends to church, wow, I will wear a Batman costume one week and I will wear a tuxedo the next. It's just clothes. And the kingdom of God is not about what we wear. So today's candle is the love candle. This is part of what it means for us to love each other. We defer to one another. We give up our preferences and our choices. Yes, we could, but we won't. Because it encourages a brother or sister in Christ. Last week, we did the hope candle and talk about hope. Today, we're going to do the love candle. And so I've given you a little example of what that looks like. We're going to read in Matthew chapter 1, where uh, Joseph, the father of Jesus, is called to love, and remember, if you've heard me talk about love before, wow, love in our world is a nonsense word because it is so huge. I can love my job, my dog, and my wife. Same word. Oh, yeah, I love my wife. Oh, yeah, I love my dog. Wow, if there's anybody out there who loves his wife the way he loves his dog, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. Those are not the same thing. But in English, we can use love for that. The word you read love in the Bible is much more specific. You've probably heard it if you've hung around in churches. It's the word agape. It means unselfish devotion. The image that's often used, and in, in, not in the Bible, but in, in the Greek language that the Bible's written in, the classical Greek, Plato and Aristotle and all those guys, is the love of a dog for its master. The selfish devotion, the loyalty of a dog for its master, that's what we're called to to each other. And so we're going to read a story about that. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18 and read down to the end of the chapter. So follow along with me. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph her husband was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said, through, what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So we're told at the beginning of this chapter, Joseph and Mary are, your Bible might say betrothed, my version said 
pledge to be married. It might, it's something that doesn't exist in our world. It's stronger than an engagement, but you're not quite married. You know, in an engagement, you've just agreed. Maybe a ring has been given, but it's just between the two parties. That's it. A betrothal, a pledge. Oh, uh, there's probably a bride price involved. There's been a dowry. There's families. Like, it's a, it's a solemn promise. It's not something that you undo lightly. Two people can be engaged, and, you know, a few months before the wedding, whenever, you could say, this isn't, this isn't going to work. I'm just not sure about this. And you can call it off, or you can postpone it, or whatever. This betrothal, I was trying to think of, okay, what would it mean when it says that Joseph's going to divorce her, right? It even uses the language of marriage, even though they're not married. He's her husband. He's going to divorce her. This would be kind of like you're at a wedding, and the, the minister says, you know, do you, Bob, take this woman, Sally, to be your wife? And he says, no. No, I, I can't do it. Like, like this, is, this is serious. That they are almost married. They are far more than engaged in our world, but they're not quite married. And then we're told that they find out that, that Mary is pregnant. So something bad has happened to this couple. Now you've got to put yourself in the world here. Put yourself into the story. Think about yourself as being in this village where this is going on. And, and you know these people at this point, Mary is the villain. Mary has done something wrong. The question in everyone's mind is, where does Joseph fit in? Is Joseph an accomplice? Is he the father? Or is Joseph the victim? Has she cheated on him? And he's not the father. Because obviously the guy she's almost married to is a good candidate for the one who's the father of the child. That's the question that's going to be running in everyone's mind. I mean, it's obvious who the mom is. Mary's pregnant. Is Joseph the dad? And we're told this interesting thing about Joseph in verse 19. Uh, the version I read, the New International Version, said he was faithful to the law. Your version might say he was righteous or, or he was a just man or something like that. And he did not want to, and again, my version translates it, expose her to public disgrace. Your transition might say something like make a spectacle of her or make an example of her. These two things in Joseph's life, they're in opposition to each other. He's a just man. He, he wants to follow the law. He wants to do what's right. We know as the audience, he's not the dad. This is God. This is something God's doing. And we'll see that when we read Mary's story in a couple weeks. This is not Joseph. But if he's just, then how does he keep everyone from thinking that he's the dad? The way he does that is he exposes her to public disgrace. Literally, he makes an example out of her. It's like a teacher going up to the blackboard and you, you write it out for the students. You put it out there publicly for everyone to see. What he ought to do is loudly protest his innocence. Because the question is, are you an accomplice? I mean, we know what Mary did is wrong. Are you an accomplice to Mary's crime? Were you part of this? Or are you the victim of Mary's crime? And because he is a just man, he should be loudly proclaiming his innocence. He should be loudly saying something. He should be going up to the blackboard like the teacher and writing it out for everyone to see. I had nothing to do with this. I've never touched the woman. This isn't me. 
I have no idea how this happened. He should absolutely make an example out of Mary. He should show that, hey, no, no, this is, this is not my fault. But we're told he doesn't want to do that. And, you know, it says in verse 20, after he had considered this, the, the word considered means literally passion within. You've heard me say before, in, in this world, your, your gut, your stomach is where your emotions are. He is churned up about this. This is not some, you know, intellectual exercise for Joseph, we're told. He is churned up. He doesn't know what to do. He knows, obviously, he's not the dad. Maybe Mary has told him the story about the angel and God. We don't know. We're not told anywhere in the scripture what the two of them knew. But he is churned up inside about this. And what he decides, ultimately, is he's kind of going to split the difference. He's not going to do, really, what, what, he sh- what he, if he wants to protect his reputation, if he wants to protect this, this idea that he is a good man, he follows the law, he does what is right, he should be loudly saying, I had nothing to do with that. But obviously, that makes her out just totally to be the villainess in this picture. right? I mean, she's, just, she's the bad one. End of discussion. And he doesn't want to do that. And so he decides to split the difference. He's not going to marry her. Right? To marry her would be an, 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 ex, an, an acceptance that, yep, he's the dad. If he marries her, then he's implicated. Um, he's not going to marry her. But he's, he's going to do it as quietly as possible. It, it's just going just to quietly be done. And then if people ask questions, right, he, can, he could just say, yeah, it didn't, it didn't work out the way I thought. She just wasn't the girl I thought she was. It, it just... You know, he, without slandering her or shaming her as much as possible, he can still tell everyone, I didn't do this. This isn't me. I had nothing to do with it. He can protect his reputation. He can protect his standing. That's what he decides to do after being all torn up inside about this. We're just going to quietly separate. And then I can keep my reputation and, and I can hang on to my standing and I can get on with my life. And then, <laughs> and then God, and then God shows up again. And an angel of the Lord appears in a dream and he says to him, and don't miss this, Joseph, son of David. 16 times in the New Testament, someone is called son of David. Here's one of them. Guess who the other 15 are? Jesus. Son of David is a messianic term. It means you are the one that God has sent to save us. That's why he's named Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua in English, Yeshua means salvation. God saves. The angel says, you're going to name him salvation because he's going to save people from their sins. Joseph is the only man in the New Testament other than Jesus who is called son of David. Joseph, Savior, Messiah, do not be afraid. Because he is. (laughs) Because if he marries her, then his reputation goes down the toilet. Because right now, what the townspeople say is, What was that Mary thinking? What's wrong with that girl? What happened? Why did she do that? And if Joseph marries her, he acknowledges, he admits to everyone, yep, this was me, I did it. I got her pregnant. 
my fault. And that whole narrative shifts. Right now, Mary's the bad guy and Joseph can be the victim by saying, no, no, it's not me. And the angel comes and says, Joseph, savior, do not be afraid to marry Mary. Do not be afraid to flip that narrative because now what everyone is gonna say is not Mary, how could she do that? Joseph, how could he do that to her? How could he, how could he not wait? How could he treat her that way? At least he's gonna marry her. At least he has the decency to do the right thing and marry the girl after this. If Joseph marries Mary, then she goes from being the villain to being the victim. And he goes from being the victim to being the villain. He takes on her shame. He takes on her guilt. It becomes his fault. And he becomes the son of David. He becomes the savior. It's not his fault. He didn't do this. He did nothing wrong. We know that. We know that as the audience. It's not his fault. He has no guilt in this. But if he marries her, then he takes it all on. All that guilt, all that shame, everything that all the townspeople, all the townspeople who used to be talking about Mary, all the whispers and things about how could this happen, how could she do this, now become whispers about how could he do this to her. You know, I was thinking in putting this together, maybe it's a mercy that God moved them to Bethlehem and then to Egypt for a couple years. Maybe it's God's mercy that he got them out of town. Heck, got them out of the country. They lived in the north in Galilee. He got them first to the south in Judea and then off down even further into Egypt. Maybe that was God's kindness to them to get them out of that town for a few years to let all of this settle down. Who knows? The Bible doesn't say that. But I can promise you, when he married this girl, everyone knew it was his fault. He was admitting it. Angel says to him, Joseph, son of David, be the son of David. Don't be afraid. And do you see what Matthew does? Right here in chapter one, he is setting up what's going to happen to the real son of David. The guy who gets the other 15 times it's named in the New Testament. The guy who's not just going to take on one person's shame and one person's guilt. He's going to take on everyone's shame and everyone's guilt. The guy who should be the hero of the story is gonna become the villain. And he's gonna be tried, and he's gonna be found guilty, and he's gonna be executed as a common criminal. You couldn't execute a Roman citizen on, the, on a cross because it's just too shameful a way to die. If you're a Roman citizen, then we, they, they chop off your head or something like that. Because the, a cross, is so embarrassing. It's a public spectacle. Joseph didn't want to do that to Mary. So he became the public spectacle. Just like Jesus became the public spectacle for us. Hung up on a cross for everyone to see. A rebel. A a guy who was going to lead a revolution. The king of the Jews. We know that's actually literally true. But the Romans wrote it. It's the charge against him. 
He's leading a rebellion. He's claiming to be the king. The king of the Jews is Herod, who operates under the emperor of the world, Caesar. And he was claiming to be the king of the Jews. And he's hung up as a public spectacle right here at the beginning of the book of Matthew. Joseph foreshadows the son of David. Joseph foreshadows what will happen to the true, real son of David. Jesus, that he will be made a public spectacle for us. He will be put on display in front of everyone. He will become the villain. He will take all the guilt and all the shame so that nobody else has to. He will flip the narrative. Whereas Mary was the villain, now Mary's the victim. Jesus will flip that for us. We were the villains. Now, after Christ, we, we get all of his good stuff. He trades with us. Matthew sets that up right at the beginning. And he, he says, like this, the God meant this. God did this. He planned it. Isaiah talked about it 800 years ago. God calls Joseph to pay the price for Mary. He calls Joseph to take Mary's guilt, just like Jesus will. So, Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas, we prepare ourselves. We talked about preparing ourselves with hope. This, this is what love means in the Bible. It's not, it's not a feeling. It may come with feelings. You may feel good about it or you may not. I don't know. It doesn't tell us how Joseph felt about this, except that he was afraid to do it in the first place. It's not a feeling. It's a decision to do good for someone else, even when it costs you. You know, this isn't a Hallmark movie where someone makes a sacrifice, but then in the end, everything turns out well, and it's all good, and you get everything back. And Joseph paid a price to marry this woman. And Jesus paid a price to buy us back. And then God says to us, be like Jesus. Be like my son. Be people who love who are willing to pay the price. Is there anywhere in your life, as we come up to Christmas, as you think about these next few weeks, as we close out the year, is there anywhere in your life where God is calling you the same way he called Joseph? He's calling you to pay a price for somebody else. It's gonna cost you. It's not going to cost them. It's going to cost you. But that's what God's asking you to do. That's what love wants you to do, to take the hit for someone else, to take whatever it is for someone else, to do them good. Tim Keller's a pastor up in New York City, and he will hold periodically these seeker sessions where he'll invite people who aren't Christians, or you can bring your non-Christians, to, to talk about the faith. Like, what is it? What's going on? So it's not a church service. It's happening some other time. And he tells a story about meeting a woman there once who came, and of course he asked her, you know, why are you coming here? What are you interested? What's going on? And the woman said, well, um, I've, I've, you know, I'm recently graduated from college and I've been working, it was NBC or CBS, it was one of the television networks, that I've been working for this network for about three months, and a couple weeks ago I made a mistake, a bad mistake, a career-ending <laughs> mistake. I made a mistake that, that should have gotten me fired. But... My boss took the hit. My, my boss took the blame instead of me. And so nothing happened to me. 
I kept my job, everything went well. My boss got severely reprimanded. Now, he's high enough to chain, they didn't just fire him, but he got severely reprimanded. This will hurt his career. But he did that, so nothing happened to me. So I asked him, why? Why did you do this? And he said, well, Jesus did this for me. Jesus took all my mistakes, so I didn't get punished for them. And then he asked me to do the same for others. So this was a chance for, for me to do what he had done for me. So that's why I took the hit for you. And so she told uh, the pastor, uh, Tim Keller, she told him, like, I, I want to know more about this Jesus guy. Like, I want to know more about someone that, that this is how they act. They, they take guilt on themselves for others' sake. Is there anywhere in your life as we come up to Christmas that that's what God's asking you to do? Take the hit, pay the cost for someone else, for, for, for some, something else. You know, I don't know, something in your family, something in people you're trying to witness to, I don't know. But is there anywhere that God is calling you to be like Joseph? Is there anywhere that God is saying to you, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Anywhere that God wants you to live out what has been done for you. Again, like we don't do this because we're noble. We do this because Jesus did this for us. Jesus did it for us far more than he'll ever ask us to do it for anybody else. I don't think we're ever going to be asked to die for the sins of the world. But Jesus might be asking you to take the hit for someone else. To, to, to take the blame. To take the cost, to pay the cost yourself. It's not your fault. But maybe the relation, getting, re rebuilding the relationship, solving the problem, whatever the issue is, maybe it's going to mean that you have to pay the cost, even though it's not your guilt. It wasn't your fault. You are in good stead, brothers and sisters. You, you are up there with the only other man in Scripture in the New Testament who is called son of David. I mean, I don't know about you, but I want to meet this guy. I absolutely want to meet this guy one day. Is there anywhere God is saying to you, son, daughter of David, I want you to pay the price. It's not your fault. But this is part of what love means. It means giving up our rights. It means giving up what we're allowed. It means deferring and being gracious to one another because we can and because Jesus has for us. So I'm going to pray for us. As I always do, again, if you think I'm preaching to you, don't worry. I'm not going to greet you at the door with like, so did you get that? You know I was talking to you, right? I'm not a prophet. God doesn't tell me those things. I'm just a teacher. I can tell you what the scriptures say. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God's spirit to speak to us. Are there, is there any way that God wants us to be like, jo like Joseph, who was like Jesus? Is there any way God wants us to pay the cost for reconciliation, pay the cost for, for salvation, for whatever it is that's going on with someone or some group? See what he says. If he says yes, don't be afraid. Everything he says is good. Not cheap, not free, good. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you. I thank you for this remarkable man.
I mean, I, I, boy, between him and Mary, I totally get why you picked to come to earth through these two. Wow. Thank you for, for, for the other son of David in the New Testament. Thank you for his example. Thank you that the scripture says he woke up and he did everything you commanded him. He had already made his decision to do something else, but you told him to do this and he did it. He married Mary and he, however many months later, he named the boy Jesus, just like you said. Wow, this is a guy who obeyed at great cost to himself. He took on his wife's guilt, his wife's shame, just like you do for us, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. We're, we're so grateful. We're so, so grateful that you have done this for us. You have taken on our guilt and our shame. You are the true son of David, the, the true savior of the world. Oh, Lord, I pray for us. Is there anywhere that you are asking us in some small way to be like you? Is there anywhere you are asking us to pay a price that isn't ours? It's not our fault. We didn't do it. But it is your desire that we pay that price because you have plans. You, you, you want to be at work. Just like, like you, you called this, this guy in the TV, the TV station, to pay the price for his employee so that she was interested in you. Jesus, we are your servants. We want to be like you. If there's ways that you are calling us, Holy Spirit, speak to us. You know we are dense. You know it is hard for us to hear. You know, like Taylor said, wow, Advent is busy. You know that our minds and our hearts are filled with so many things. Jesus, speak to us by your spirit in ways we can hear and understand so that we can obey, so that we can do just what the angel said. We cannot be afraid. We can do what you are calling us to do, even knowing it will cost us. Because you are good, and you will pay it all back one day. Lord, I pray for us that we would be exactly what that quote from C.S. Lewis said. We would be a hotbed of charity and humility. That that is the things that would mark us. Jesus, we pray these things in your name because we are your people. You bought us back. You made that possible. Thank you. Amen.